Are you ready to kick off the summer grilling season? As warm weather brings gatherings outdoors, choose Lodge Cast Iron's full line of grilling products for delicious results and cookware that lasts season over season. The durable and portable kickoff grill is ready for everything from backyard barbecues and game day tailgates to camping trips and family vacations. This charcoal grill has an easy to use design with just two pieces of iron and no assembly required. And step up your game with a versatile and expertly crafted grilling accessories. Make delicious smash burgers seared to perfection with the burger press or transform your gas grill and infuse your favorite foods with smoky flavor using the smoker skillet. Lodge has the cast iron you need for every adventure and celebration the summer brings. Learn more at lodgecastiron.com. For Lodge's longtime support of summer cookouts and this gravy podcast, we thank them. Enjoy listening to this podcast? Tell a friend, and then you'll have one more thing in common. Is there one inviolate, evergreen way to make a Cuban sandwich, Melissa? I want to say yes, but I think that you're asking me the question, and that means maybe no? It had ham, pork, Salami. It would be the roasted pork, um, the, the, you know, the sweet ham, the pickle, the Swiss cheese. My interpretation of a Cuban sandwich doesn't have salami in it. Um, my interpretation of a sandwich doesn't have mayonnaise in it. As I got into more Cuban food, this was sort of this outlier that seemed a little different. It didn't fit in with the rest. The Cuban sandwich. It is and isn't so many things to so many people. And yet, its history in the United States its origin story in the U.S., and its role in the Southern Foodways canon has been hotly debated for years. To understand more about the significance of the Cuban sandwich and what it tells us about Cuban-American identity, I traveled to the southernmost state in the United States, Florida. Today on Gravy, we learn what Kayla's travels and what the Cuban sandwich can tell us about the American South. Here's a hint, Tampa and Miami are both Southern cities. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 Kayla Stewart is on the trail of the one true Cuban sandwich. Let's follow her. Driving into Miami, Florida was one of the most atmospheric experiences I've ever had. Cuban street-facing cafes and restaurants dance halls, and art galleries line the streets of the Florida city. It's pretty easy to see why 1.2 million Cubans call Miami home, making it the most populous city of Cuban Americans in the United States. Miami has become the center of Cuban American immigrant life, reflected in the city's arts, culture, politics, and yes, most definitely its food. I have a friend who just recently uh, moved back from New York, but when his little girl was explaining to the other children where she was from, she says, I'm from another country. I'm from Miami. And she was very definite about that. And I think it speaks to that sense of otherness that's here where the other is, 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 is the norm or it's the, you know, not because there's not conflict and not because there aren't issues in, in, in understanding each other and in between the different communities, but there is this sense of what we bring with us is going to stay with us. Um, and it's done with a, with a lot of intention for each for every community that's, that that comes here. That's Ana Sofia Pelais, a cookbook author and activist of Cuban American descent. 
She's the executive director and co-founder of the Miami Freedom Project and author of The Cuban Table, a celebration of food, flavors, and history. Born and raised in Miami, Cuban food is simply food to Anna, and she spent years researching the Cuban sandwich and other elements of Cuban cuisine. Before trying my first Cuban sandwich, I knew I had to speak to the expert. I think like most people, I think especially most people who fall in love with food, it was through my grandparents. I spent a lot of time with them growing up. They were my, you know, they were my secondary caretakers. And, you know, for them, it was always about everything was built around, scheduled around what we were going to have, what we were going to eat, what we were going to have next. The Cuban cuisine continued to resonate with Anna throughout her life. She spent just over 20 years living in NYC during adulthood, where there's also a thriving Cuban immigrant community. Now back home in Miami, Anna's been able to reflect on her work and research, and of course, Cuban food. As Anna described memories of ropa vieja, tostones, and rice and beans, I had to ask her about the main item on my menu, the Cuban sandwich. What the heck is it? And I know it's a little bit controversy, right? <laughs> that like, should be a simple question, and it's it? not. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I under, understand the Cuban sandwich to be, it would be the roasted pork, um, the, the, you know, the sweet ham, the pickle, the Swiss cheese. It's very much like a savory, you know, a salty, um, you know, the vinegar from the, the pickles, um, salt and vinegar type flavor with the cheese just kind of melting it all together. And, you know, the eggshell crust that just kind of collapses and you get that, you know, perfectly buttery top. Anna's definition of the Cuban sandwich lines up with her Miami upbringing. One of the main ingredients Anna left out, however, is the most controversial. It's the salami, and it's what has caused so much contention about what exactly defines a Cuban sandwich and who can lay claim to inventing it. You know, I understand why having, you know, adding some, you know, cured pork to a, a sandwich would make it better. I appreciate that. But I, I, I wonder, to me, it's just it's, it's a great sandwich. It's just not my sandwich in the sense it doesn't connect me to, you know, the sandwich that I grew up with. Anna's perspective reflects many in her local community. The Cuban sandwich debate has largely centered around two cities and one ingredient, Tampa and Miami and salami. Miami does not add salami to their Cuban sandwiches, while Tampa does. You're also more likely to find mayonnaise on your Cuban sandwich in Tampa and occasionally lettuce and tomato. For my first Cuban sandwich, I stopped by Sanguich de Miami, the spot Anna and countless other Miami residents told me I had to try. Owned by Daniel Figueredo and his wife, Rosa Romero, Sanguich de Miami prepares one of the most recognized Cuban sandwiches in the state. After tasting one, I could see why. The roasted pork was perfectly seasoned, pickles exceptionally crunchy, bread precisely toasted. After opening their restaurant in 2016, the husband-wife team perfected a sandwich that has caused decades-old arguments at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Daniel's not a purist. He believes that, for the world at large, there are many ways to approach preparing a Cuban sandwich. In his shop, however, there's only one way that flies. And I think if you're referring to what happens in Tampa versus what happens in Miami, I think we have to take a step back and really understand why the Cuban sandwich in Tampa is what it is and why the Cuban sandwich in Miami is what it is. My interpretation of a Cuban sandwich doesn't have salami in it. Um, my interpretation of a sandwich doesn't have mayonnaise in it. My interpretation of that sandwich does not have lettuce or tomatoes in it. And it's only because of, of how that sandwich became to be here, right? I think the Cuban sandwich in Miami is the closest representation to El Emparedado in Cuba, which started off in the 1800s. 
and it really was, you know, pork sandwich with, you know, ham and mustard and pickles and on Cuban bread. Daniel's a first-generation Cuban-American, part of a Cuban family that migrated to Florida in 1961 and 62, shortly after the revolution. His Cuban household introduced him to emperorados, various types of sandwiches, pastelitos, perfectly sweet Cuban guava pastries, and batidos, Cuban fruit drinks, all of which are staples in his diet today. But one memory in particular sticks out. My, gra my grandparents had moved down from Chicago in 1984, um, actually 1987, they bought the house in 84 and they officially moved in 1987. Um, once my grandfather had, had retired and they moved not too far from a little place called Badillas and Badillas was a very famous restaurant in Hialeah. <clears throat> and it was kind of like, it, it had everything under, on, you know, under the roof it, you know, your typical arroz frijole and boliche and, you know, your, your carne asadas and, um, your milanesas, and it also had, you know, a little section of sandwiches. And I remember having, asking for a croqueta preparada because my grandmother really loved them. And so I had a croqueta preparada and I was hooked. I was probably 14 at the time, 13, 14 years old at the time. Um, and then it just becomes, you know, it becomes like part of your, I guess your, your weekly routine, you know, you want a Cuban sandwich, you get a Cuban sandwich. We didn't really see it as, as, as exotic. It was just part of our, our, I guess our culinary profile as, as a culture, we just, it's what we ate. Daniel's recognition of the Cuban sandwich as just one part of a vibrant culture aligns with his peer in Tampa, Anthony More Jr. of La Segunda Central Bakery. The bakery, which now has two locations, was first opened by More's grandfather in 1915 in Ybor City, an immigrant neighborhood that's welcomed Cubans, Italians, and Spanish immigrants. I met Anthony, both of us masked up, at the second location of La Segunda, located near South Tampa, where he told me all about his understanding of the Cuban sandwich. It's just a very simple sandwich to make. It's got wonderful bread, which we call Cuban bread here. Anthony, who remembers the Cuban sandwich from his childhood years in West Tampa, reflected on a sandwich that's evolved over time and across regions. It had ham, pork, salami, Salami, which Miami does not say it has. Um, Swiss cheese, pickles, and mustard mayonnaise. And when, you know, in Ybor City and back when I was growing up, almost there was at least five or six places making Cuban sandwiches. You would see them cutting the pork right there in the windows. You know, that was a big, big thing. They cut the pork, slice the pork by hand, make it there bake the ham themselves, always, always had salami. Though their versions of the sandwich differ, Anthony and Daniel have heard similar origin stories. Memories passed down through generations highlight the emergence of cigar factories in Tampa in the 1880s, where Cuban immigrants of that time enjoyed the sandwich during lunch. Andy Hughes, Tampa resident and author of the forthcoming book, The Life and Times of the Cuban Sandwich, has spent years trying to unpack this complex and extensive history. Well, it just goes back a lot farther than people give it credit for. So, you know, for most people, this, you know, the, the history begins sometime in the 50s. I mean, for a long time, journalists would say, oh, it just kind of showed up in the 1960s in America, and it, it wasn't here before. So, 
Um, and that's just, you know, false. It, it had been crisscrossing the country for a long time before then. Come back to learn more about the origins of the Cuban sandwich and what that stack of bread and meat says about contemporary Cuban-American Southern identity. Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. I met Andy outside of the Boozy Pig, a butcher shop in Delhi and Tampa that of course serves the Cuban sandwich. Andy's not Cuban-American, but has spent most of his adult life in Tampa, studying the food and learning more about Cuban-American immigrant experiences. It took Andy some time to realize just how fascinating the sandwich really was. The more I got to know know about it and the more I got to learn about um, how much work used to go into old Cuban sandwiches in the, you know, in the old days and stuff, um, I was really intrigued, you know, and as I got into more Cuban food, this was sort of this outlier that seemed a little different. It didn't fit in with the rest. Um, and that's still something I'm really interested in is like the place of the Cuban sandwich in Cuban cuisine historically, uh, because it is a bit of an outlier and um, it's sort of like it doesn't fit in with all the old kind of one pot over rice meals um, and things like that that you find. Um, so that's what I, I found really interesting is I think it's like an aspirational sandwich in a way. It's like it's this this bridge to the outside world. Andy slashed the notion that Tampa came up with the sandwich, but gave them due credit for making the sandwich what it is today. You know, Tampa didn't invent the sandwich, you know, but Tampa was part of the circuit or this kind of transnational workplace that gave birth to the sandwich. Using old databases, Andy was able to find records of the Cuban sandwich in Mixto, or mixed meat sandwiches, dating back to the 1800s. To make the Cuban sandwich in Cuba, Cubans would often rely on imports for key ingredients like special cuts of meat and cheeses. And that history goes back to wars past and the recurring historical theme of Cuban exile. The diaspora goes back to before the Ten Years' War, you know, this is 18, uh, 1868 to 78. Um, so back, you know, in the 1840s, you already had people trickling out of Cuba because they were being exiled by the Spanish crown uh, for advocating independence and things like that. So you already have this group there. And um, what ends up happening is with the introduction of the steamship and the railroad is everyone is, is super mobile. And Cubans are especially attuned to, like, they're not afraid to, to move one place or another. I mean, they've already been sort of kicked out of their country. And then a lot of other people found that there was a very profitable kind of circuit of displaced cigar industry. As Cuban Americans were immigrating and finding new places to call home and revolutionizing cigar factories in the United States, 
the nature of cooking and preservation was also changing. The Spanish were introducing the world to open-faced sandwiches, and sandwiches worldwide, across cultures, were taking off in an unprecedented manner. They were dealing exclusively with imports, you know. You had these places in the late 20th century, like in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, where you had refrigeration for the first time in, in places like Havana. But uh, most of the places equipped with this equipment were carrying imported ingredients, and not just from the U.S., but from Europe as well. But then you also got this other strain going back to Spain, you know, where you've got um, these open-faced sandwiches, and, and that culture is very much intact. Um, but that's where you have, like, fluted loaves of bread, elongated loaves of bread, not these big um, flat, you know, slices. Um, so, so somewhere where those two kind of strains of thought meet, the Cuban sandwich was born. So yes, there's proof that a lot of different historical events and changing global culinary practices paved the way for what we now know as the Cuban sandwich. But the Florida immigrant community, particularly in the 20th century, has made the Cuban sandwich the icon that it is today. I mean, the immigrant experience shaped it a lot. And a lot of that had to do with making the cheapest sandwich you could possibly make. Uh, because no Cuban wanted to turn a fellow exile away for lack of, you know, uh, for lack of money. So, you know, whereas the, the Cuban sandwich, I think, originally was a... was very much a luxury item you know this wasn't something that was meant for the masses it was um and what's interesting about the sandwich in cuba in the 50s is you know there was a different sandwich for every strata of society right so the whole sandwich didn't get changed for one group or another but if you were a banker you ate at this cuban sandwich place if you were you know a bricklayer you know you ate and drank at this place um so, you know, there was a lot of different sandwiches for different people and sort of budgets, etc. But then Miami got its hands on the sandwich. But that all changed, you know, in Miami where it really became equalized. You know, some sandwich slingers didn't even want to put cheese on it because it would, they'd have to raise the price. So that's how you get the very austere two-meat sandwich, which you know, for a Cuban sandwich is austere because historically you'd find a whole lot of other things on it. Um, well, like, like poultry is very, like, you don't see or hear of it anymore. But in Cuba um, and, in, you know, and all over the U.S., uh, sliced chicken, you know, cold chicken or turkey would be used. There may be multiple sandwiches, but there's no doubt that the Cuban sandwich has become a marker of Cuban Southern identity. Cuban sandwich shops can be found on nearly every block in Miami's Little Havana, and the sandwich is beloved by Cuban Americans throughout the United States. Yet, despite its proliferation in the nation's southernmost state, the sandwich and the diverse landscape of Cuban food in general has rarely been recognized as part of the Southern foodways canon. As the region has become more diverse, Anna is eager to see Southern culture become more inclusive and to see Cuban food recognized as an important part of Southern cuisine. It's, it's at its point where it needs to be seriously considered and, 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 and seen in the, in the context of the larger, because even before the Cuban sandwich, there was this kind of 
steady flow back and forth between Cuba um, to Florida to the state that we're always part of this 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 state this part of this region. Um, so that's very important to recognize, and it's not a Cuban sandwich, but a lot of other different things that we brought in. These other things Cubans have brought to the United States, like Cuban coffee, pernil rellano, mojo croillo, and so many other dishes, have been part of the American and particularly Southern foodways. The significance of Cuban Americans' contributions to our dining landscape is evident through Florida. These sometimes underrepresented contributions explain part of why Cuban Americans have long been so concerned about the origins of the Cuban American sandwich, what the sandwich really is, and why these culinary contributions are deeply part of Southern culture. There is a very strong sense of place here, which is almost, there's something almost surreal about it. Um, so I think in our, in our food, there's something very much that is part of the South, that is part of what you want to eat when it's hot, what you want to eat when it's, you know, the, you got that sea, you know, that salt in the air, what, you know, it's, it is very much part of a very physical sensory experience. So I think to that, if that makes us a better candidate for being part of the Southern canon, I would like to offer that, that. Anna and Andy believe it's important to not get caught up in the semantics of what makes a Cuban sandwich and who decided it, but rather recognize the incredible evolution of the sandwich the inherent and inarguably Cuban ingenuity behind the sandwich and what it means to Cuban Americans. You know, there's this notion that the Cuban sandwich is something that's set in stone, you know, and as we know, food, language, everything is constantly changing, and the, the Cuban sandwich is too, and even if you think you're putting the same ingredients on, they're not the same ingredients they were 100 years ago. I think it's it's almost like we don't really have to deny each other because I think we have very two independent um, origin stories um, that are equally valid. Um, and then in some ways there's a lot of commonality between the two. For Daniel, it's about laying claim to a part of American food and history that's decidedly Cuban. I feel the Cuban sandwich is is something that we identify with one because it's just part of our it's part of our our culinary landscape it's it is what it is it's something we were raised with it's much like a taco is you know what it means to the mexican cuisine or how important that is right and they lay claim to it because that's where it originated um the emparedado originated in cuba and i guess just because of just generationally it it means something and every every culture has something they're very very proud of and the cuban sandwich for me the reason why it's important for me is because of 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 my experience my my interaction with that food at such a young age um the convenience of it the the taste the smell um the preparation um we lay claim to it because at least i mean it's my opinion I, we lay claim to it because it's just been part of our tradition right so it, it gives us an opportunity to identify ourselves with something that other people also appreciate. And I, I believe that when people appreciate something, someone wants to lay claim to it. And rightfully, it's ours. Kayla Stewart reported and produced this episode. Special thanks go to Patty Vargas and Sonia Hendler. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. 
Visit southernfoodways.org to make a donation. Your dollars fund our good work. And while you've got your phone in your hand, you know you do, download our SFA Stories app and let SFA be your guide as you explore the South. It's free right there in the App Store, whatever app store you use. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.